text if you are just joining us this day, or perhaps uh, you've missed the last couple of weeks. Um, we've started into a series on spiritual gifts, and uh, that can have sometimes a, a bit of a visceral reaction, depending on where you fall into that spectrum of experiencing spiritual gifts, what you have previously understood and what you previously know. Um, but what we're looking to do through this series is just find a kind of a radical center, if you will, of the extremes of the spectrum for both understanding and experiencing the gifts. And not just we want to find the middle ground for middle ground's sake, but we were looking for genuine, true, biblical understanding of what are the purposes? What does the Bible say about the gifts that are given to the church? Why are the gifts given to the church? What have we previously understood? Where do we need to adjust our thinking? And how do we engage in faith with this great gift, as the, as the Bible calls them, that are for the church? So I want to jump just straight in this morning for the sake of time. And so again, we're studying on the gifts of the Spirit or the manifestations of grace is another way of saying it. The gifts of the Spirit, and we, as we began the first week, if you missed the first week, I would encourage you because it laid a bit of a foundation for how we're moving forward with our understanding of the spiritual gifts. If you could put that up for me up there, I would appreciate it. I don't have a means to control it this week. So we have understood them to be the word in the Greek for gift is charisma, which is also the word for grace. And so we understand these to be expressions of grace for the church. And I'm not going to go back into it, but it's just to say that God has given them to the church for the common good. And so what we are endeavoring to understand is how the Lord has empowered us or calls us to be empowered, if you will, under his inspiration and his unction and according to his will and timing to be empowered to do extraordinary things, to go beyond our limitations for the glory of God and for the common good of others is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. So if, you'll, if you're in 1 Corinthians 12, let's begin in verse 7. And I'm going to read two portions of chapter 12. In verse 7, he says that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, which is what I was just saying a moment ago. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Now jump to verse 27 at the end of the chapter. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, Paul asks, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? And then he finishes in verse 31 and he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Today I want to speak on gifts of healings, gifts of healings. And I want you to notice from the onset the intentional use of the plural, gifts of healings. 
while healing is spoken of all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, the phrase gifts of healing or gift of healing is only found three times in the Bible, and it's right here in these verses that we just read. And what it's commonly translated in the singular in English, which we read here this morning, in the Greek is actually plural in all three instances in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So what's the importance of that? I want to say just from the onset that I believe that as we begin, this is an important emphasis to make because I want to establish or at least I would like to put forward to you that there is no such thing as a gift of healing. A gift whereby one person possesses a God-given ability to heal every person every time of every disease. I do not believe that this is what is said here, that there is one gift given, the ability for one person to heal every disease every time with every person. And so I think that the importance from the onset of Paul using the plural it seems to be that he's suggesting that in the various expressions of healings that are extended by God through and to his people, that each one of them in and of themselves are their own gift. That it is the, the, the expressions or the extension of grace unto his people that is the gift. It isn't the ability that is the gift per se, but it is the healings that are the gifts that are given. Does that distinction make sense in your mind? And I think that's important. It's important to make in the beginning. So it's not about one gift of healing and whether or not you have it or don't have it. Instead, it is about believing and confessing your faith in a God who you believe and know can heal. And I want to give you a, a helpful definition that I did not write myself, but I found it in my studies this week for this. If you could put it up, a gift of healing is defined as such. It is when the Spirit sovereignly distributes a charisma or an expression of grace. When the Spirit sovereignly distributes a charisma of healing for a particular occasion, even though previous prayers for physical restoration under similar circumstances, may not have been answered. And even those subsequent prayers for the same afflictions may not be answered. So with this definition, church, we can therefore conclude that gifts of healings are random and subject to the sovereign will and purposes of God. That is very important as well. And can I just say, if today, if there's nothing else if there's nothing else that you would grab a hold of in your heart and mind, please settle this one thing, that the extension of God's grace for miraculous healing happens only when he purposes it to. Purposes it to. These gifts of healing are subject to the sovereign will of God, not the will of man, church. And again, what I'm doing is, uh, while I'm not calling out everything that we've understood. I'm hoping in my teaching and in my admonishment to correct thinking. 
where we have somehow been told that this person has a gift unto themselves that I don't have, in the sense of that I could not have. And again, as I said a few weeks ago, I don't believe that that's true. That doesn't seem to be what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is that we are a spiritual people who have been born again by the Spirit of God. We are empowered by the Spirit of God, right? You believe that. And as such, as spiritual beings, which Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 12.1, as spiritual beings, we should then expect that we would act in a spiritual way. And by that I mean that we would experience and encounter the power and the presence of the kingdom that will one day be in full that is here now in part. We live in this almost partly in and partly out because we're natural and the effects of the natural world are, are visible and vibrant often. But we are spiritual and that we have been made new. We have been, what, born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God. And so we are spiritual beings, church. And Paul would say to this, that it is subject to the will of God. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, that it's by the Spirit that the gifts of healing are given. And he says in 11, that to each one, that the gifts are given to each one individually as he, the Spirit of God, determines, or as he wills, Paul says. So it all comes from God. It's all according to God according to his timing, according to his purpose, according to his plan, which we have no insight into beyond what we understand to be revealed within scripture of the revelation of redemption of humanity. And so there's many, as we begin with this important point, we can acknowledge that there are still many who would say that healing or a lack thereof comes primarily at least as a result of the faith of the individual or the lack thereof. And I'm sure many of you have heard this before. A common example would be in prayer, you are not healed because you do not have faith to be healed. It is not subject to the will of men, church, but to the will of God. So, so important. Again, if nothing else, take a hold of that this morning. It frees us, doesn't it? It frees us from this tension or pressure or this weight of feeling as though not only do I not always understand how God works or how I am supposed to use this gift, but it also frees me from feeling as though I lack this gift. It's according to the will of God. However, at the other end of this spectrum, I would say, is equally as dangerous, which is the thought that faith is somehow irrelevant and that all that matters is that God is sovereign and that he will do what he wills. Those are two ends of the spectrum. Is God sovereign? Yes, he is. Does God do and complete what he has determined to do? Yes, he does. And yet, Scripture is ripe with seemingly God responds to faith of individuals. And so there is this importance of this both and, that somehow as 
not as somehow, but in the sense of un, not unlike the rest of Christianity, where it is a one-sided initiation where God does, and then he calls us to submit to, to follow in step, to believe in faith, to act out in obedience, right? That there's a part that we both play in it. And so James 5 tells us that it is the prayer of faith, he says. That it's the prayer of faith that heals the one who is sick. And also, too, we see that in numerous accounts throughout the New Testament that it says that Jesus saw their faith, that he perceived them to have faith, that he responded to their faith for healing, whether it was the person who was sick themselves or coming on behalf of. So faith somehow has this part to play. And I would say it's a bit apropos then in Paul's mind that he follows the gifts of healing right after gift of faith, which I spoke on last week. Church, faith matters. And what we want to do is we want to strike a healthy balance in the middle between resting in God's sovereign will and engaging our faith in what we know is true. Believing in a God who can heal, and so therefore we pray for healing. And then it's God who chooses, and it's God who decides whether he will or what he won't. So then we have to ask ourselves, what is true? And so having said that, what I want to do this morning is I want to lay a bit of a, of a biblical theology for healing that's going to help us understand, I think, better what God's purpose is and design is in healing so that it gives us context for the gifts of healings that Paul speaks of. And so there's three questions that I want to answer this morning. The first is, does God still heal? Does God still heal? And then, spoiler alert, the next question is, why does God heal? And then the third question is, why doesn't God heal? Does God still heal? Why does God heal? Why doesn't God heal? And so don't get up and walk out of here right now because you'll be totally confused. <laughs> Just based off of those three questions. <laughs> so as to the first, does God still heal? We have to go back to the beginning, church. Healing became necessary as a part of God's plan because of the fall of humanity. Prior to sin entering into the world, there was no sickness, there was no death. Sin brought sickness. Sin brought disease, right? And obviously we know sin brought death. But, and this is a huge and significant, important but, B-U-T. Just as sin brought sickness and death, so too did the cross bring freedom and life. As sin brought sickness and death, Jesus Christ through the cross brings freedom and life. And not in equal measure either, church. Rather, it's brought with a grace that far supersedes sin and far supersedes the curses of sin. Paul would say in Romans 5.17, he says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, much more, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. And that's the word again, charis. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life 
through the one man, Jesus Christ. Are you guys following me here this morning? Through Adam came sin, from sin came sickness and disease, through Jesus came life. And in the life of Christ and the grace of God comes freedom from the effects of sin. This is the foundation to our understanding of healing in the kingdom of God. It is to see that through the atonement of Christ Jesus brought with it both the freedom from sin and also freedom from the effects of sin. Do you believe that? The atonement of Jesus Christ brought with it not only freedom from sin, but also the effects that sin has on the life. And as we know, of course, while we do not experience freedom from sin in totality in this life, other words, sinless perfectionism, right? We're not promised that. We don't experience sinless perfectionism in this life, but we have a taste of it now. We have a taste of it by the Spirit of God in our life, working within us that we are free from sin, so too then do we experience the freedom from the effects of sin in part, i.e. healing in our lives this day. Do you believe that? Both can be experienced now because of what Christ Jesus overcame through his cross. And remember what I said last week regarding the work of the Spirit that's present within the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is what, he is a down payment. He is a partial payment, if you will. He is a payment that will one day be fully given at the redemption of humanity. So in other words, it is now, but not fully yet. The Holy Spirit is our down payment now and will fully one day be. What is that one-day promise of healing for the life of the believer? What is that one-day fulfillment of perfect healing that the Holy Spirit gives us now in part? Let's look at Revelation chapter 21. It's a well-known text, but it speaks directly to this. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. If you don't have it, you can just listen along. But Revelation 21, this is John's vision, and he sees now the new heaven and the new earth. And beginning in John chapter 21, beginning here in verse, let's pick up at verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things. What are the former things? The cursed things. The former things, he said, have passed away. Church, that is our eternal promise. That is what the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of for us as it pertains to healing. And may I say again though, as such, as living now, the kingdom of God has come on earth. The Holy Spirit enacts according to the will of God portions of a taste of the future of what will be now. 
And so we see healing now. It is the will of God to heal people. So then to the answer to our question of God, does he still heal? I would say that God heals as a foretaste of the future promise and as a part of the new covenant age that he ushered in through Jesus Christ. And may I say also an age that we live in this day. The age that was brought in, the kingdom age, the church age that was enacted through Jesus Christ in his time on earth is the same age that we live in this day. It has not ended, it has not changed. And so then if God still heals, which he does, as we pursue God in faith for it, I think it's incredibly helpful for us to answer the next question of why does he heal? Because knowing why gives us something to grab a hold of in faith. It's the promises, it's the certainties in our hearts that we take a hold of in faith when we pursue healing on earth. We have reasons, we have ways and understanding, we have promises to pray for and to pursue in faith. And so I want to give you just three kind of subpoints, if you will, three handles to grab a hold of. The first is this, that healing is a part of God's redemptive purposes. Healing is a part of God's redemptive purposes on earth. And this is what I was just speaking of a moment ago, that death came from Adam and life through Christ Jesus. But when we say life, we must also include all of the byproducts that life consists of, church. As part of the new creation of Jesus Christ, we are recipients and beneficiaries of his many blessings now in this present age. One of which is physical healing. That is a blessing and a byproduct. Again, we know it has an eternal counterpart, and so it must have a present-day expression. Turn to 1 Peter, would you? Are you guys following me okay? I'm going to just keep asking that question over and over again. Well, it's funny sometimes, you know, if you ever have an opportunity, which most of you probably in some context have, to stand and to speak in front of people, sometimes you can really tell when people are jiving and connecting with what you're saying. And then sometimes you wonder if anything that you're saying is being spoken in English. <laughs> right, Mike? Sometimes you just got to wonder. How can you help me? Just give me a big amen, Becky. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at verse 24. So I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is, is that there are byproducts of the present kingdom age that we experience now as part of the new covenant people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 speaks directly to this. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And some of you might be saying, well, wait a minute, Peter isn't speaking about being healed of sin's physical effects. 
He's just talking about the healing of our souls, regeneration and sanctification, isn't he? Well, I would say this, that when salvation was applied, it's applied to all of life. When Christ redeemed our souls, he redeemed our bodies as well. And this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians in a few chapters, in chapter 15, when he's talking about the certainty of the resurrection. When he says that by, by a man, that man being Adam, came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And he's speaking of the resurrection of our bodies, physical bodies being resurrected. The certainty of that in Christ Jesus. So redemption is applied not just to the soul of the individual, but to the entirety of the individual, including the physical nature of the individual. And interesting too, let's look at the words of Matthew. This in 1 Peter here, chapter 2, he is paraphrasing Isaiah 53, but Matthew records the same if you'll look at it with me. And it's interesting. Turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 14, he says, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. It's interesting, did you catch the difference there between Matthew and Peter? Matthew expands the understanding of Isaiah's prophecy to include mankind's physical redemption as well, not just our souls. He bore our diseases and our illnesses. And then again, what Isaiah and what Peter would say, by his wounds you were healed. And of course, we know that not only Jesus' ministry, of which the New Testament is filled with, but also the ministry of the apostles and the early church were consistent in not only believing, but modeling the reality of physical healing being a part of the new covenant age. It wasn't just Jesus, but it was also those who were of him who would come after him. Countless individuals recorded over the centuries numerous accounts of miraculous healings. I was thinking about this, you know, even the, the brilliant, faithful stalwart of the Christian faith, Charles Spurgeon, who by seemingly his own admonition was a cessationist, if you read some of his writings, and by that I mean he, he didn't believe in the continued work of the Holy Spirit. He has recorded over a thousand times where he laid his hands on someone and saw them healed. And yet, interestingly enough, his wife lived with physical ailments her entire life. But even Charles Spurgeon laid his hands and saw the Lord Jesus Christ bring sovereign healing through him to others. And I would say probably in this room today there are those, I know there are those, who have laid their hands on people who are sick and have seen them physically healed. God continues to heal. He still heals today. It is a part 
of his redemptive purposes. And second, as to why does God heal? Secondly, that healings bring glory to God. It gives God glory. In speaking of the significance of faith at work within healings, this week I read one writer would say that faith is required because faith glorifies God. Why is faith necessary? Why does God respond to faith? Because faith glorifies God. He says this, it redirects our spiritual and emotional energy away from self and onto the God who sustains us. Faith is not a force that compels God. Listen, church. Faith is not a force that compels God or in any sense create our own reality. Sorry, it compels God to act or in any sense create our own reality. It is an expression of weakness and utter dependency. Faith glorifies God. Healings bring glory to God. And just as faith points us and others towards God, so too does the revelation of his compassion, the revelation of his love, his mercy, all which are extended to us and to others when God chooses to heal. When he heals, his fatherly love and care is shown. It pleases God to extend healing, church. God delights in it. He doesn't feel coerced when we beg and plead. He responds to faith by giving and revealing his glory. It pleases God. The words of Jesus in the in Gospel of Matthew And he says this, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? Your father in heaven gives good things. It pleases God. When God heals, his promises are confirmed, right? When he heals, his promises are confirmed. He proves himself to be not only alive and active amongst the world, but wholly true, in other words, self-attesting and unchanging in his ways. He is the God who healed, who heals, and who will heal. It is consistent in the character of God to provide physical healing in this day and age. And in this then, his character is also revealed. His name is exalted. His name is praised. And he reminds his people and proves to the watching world that there is no other that is like him, which is what we sang of this morning. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. There is none that is like our God. And his otherliness, if that's a word, His otherliness is shown when he does things miraculously and sovereignly through people. And then lastly, as to answer why God heals, we can say that healings expand the kingdom of God on earth. Healings expand God's kingdom on earth. When the grace of God is manifested through healing, listen, church, the power of the kingdom of God is not only shown as being more powerful than Satan's kingdom, 
but it literally pushes back Satan's kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of God is advanced in the hearts and minds of men and women, and simultaneously, the kingdom of Satan is pushed out. Literally pushing back the darkness by shining the bright light of the gospel. In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 72 into the surrounding areas, he says to them, heal the sick and say to them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Heal the sick and say that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Church, God does not just heal randomly. He heals intently because in so doing, he brings glory to himself, his kingdom is expanded, and his gospel message is displayed. It's intentional by God. And then so lastly, to answer the very last question, so we answered, does God still heal? Why does God heal? And then lastly, why doesn't God heal? That's a difficult question to ask and to answer, especially in 10 minutes. But I'll give it a shot. Again, can I just say, the idea here this morning is to build up in our understanding and in our faith a, a robust theology for healing so that when the opportunity arises and, the, and we are compelled by the Spirit and we lay hands on someone, that these things are settled in our hearts and in our minds. And we don't have to wonder, is it God's will, will to, that I would pray for healing right now? It's always God's will that you would pray for healing. Why? Because whether he heals or not, he receives the glory as your faith is engaged. So in the moments when we have faith for healing, or the one whom we're praying for seemingly has an added measure of faith, there are some times that even then we don't see healing extended. Why? Why is that? There's a few possible reasons that we could extract, I think, from within Scripture. I don't know if they're absolutely absolute. Perhaps a, a lack of repentance in the presence of sin in someone's life. Or an absence of the faith that God delights in responding to. But I would say this, I think that the most important reason is a reminder of how I began in the beginning, that healing is a divine providence that originates within God's sovereign will. I think that's the most important thing for us to hold on to. That healing, healing is a divine providence in accordance with God's sovereign will. And what does that do for us? It gives us hope that our sovereign God is still at work. Even when we don't see him, and again, how apropos is that for the rest of the Christian life? That we trust, we hope, we believe, we have faith in that which we do not see, but what we know to be true. Paul saw countless people healed miraculously 
read the book of Acts. And yet what? He lived with a chronic thorn in his flesh, it says. And regardless of the origin, we don't know what, what that technically was in Paul's life. But we know that God chose it for Paul to show himself powerful through it. To show himself sovereign in it. That in Paul's weakness, he would be powerful. Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul tells Timothy to drink wine for his stomach and frequent ailments. There's another example of healing not extended. In Philippians 2, Paul tells the church that Epaphroditus was ill and nearly died. There's another servant of the gospel in the New Testament church, in the early church. Certainly these sicknesses didn't exist in Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus' life because of lack of faith, right? It wasn't because they lacked faith to be healed. Again, Paul was a man who probably saw a tremendous amount of healing by God through his obedience. And yet, God didn't heal. And so ultimately then, we have to conclude, church, that it was for some greater purpose that God had determined to bring about in their lives through their sicknesses and their ailments and the lack of healing. There was some greater purpose. And I would say to us here this day that it's here that the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8 ring loud and true, where Paul says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present Time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This was the resolution of Paul in his own heart. This wasn't just, you know, eloquent words to give to others for you to hang your hat on at the end of the day to the church in Rome. No, this was Paul speaking from a present conviction and experience that the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then what does he say in verse 28? And because of this, because of that, he says, we know that those who love God, that all things work together for good, right? All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then the words of James 1, do they not too ring loud and true where he says, count it all joy, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And he says, let steadfastness have its full effect. Let the testing of your faith have full effect, brothers and sisters, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. At the very least, church, at the very least, God is working out our faith in and through the situation. At the very least, he's using that moment to stir our faith. So when you go and you believe and you feel that God has called you and compelled you in a moment to pray for physical healing and you do not see that come to pass in that moment, I should also say, what is God doing? He's stirring your faith. He's building your faith. He's creating a greater dependence upon him and a lesser dependency upon yourself. He's receiving the glory as your faith is engaged. Regardless of the outcome, God is at work. And so on the basis of this, 
God will work in us and through us, church. We must not rest on our faith laurels, if you will, but let's be front-footed in our faith. Let's take up a posture of expectancy and of faith where we are eager and desirous to engage the enemy, if you will, the darkness that presents itself through the effects of sin, but to, greater to expand the kingdom of God in the minds, in the hearts, in the lives of men and women. Let's engage in faith in that way. And so as Paul would say that he, he gives gifts that by the Spirit of God, to some he gives gifts of healings. Church, may that be through us. On the basis of everything that I have just said, See, it gives us context now for understanding how God would use and how God would give this gift to some for the reasons of what I just said. I read this week as well, one writer described the current church as functional deists. He described the church as functional deists, those who believe that God heals but rarely, if ever, lay their hands on someone in faith and pray. Church, let's not be those. Let's not be those, church. That is not the way of God. That is not the model that we're given in the New Testament church. That is not what we are to understand of the nature of the present day church. Let's be ready. Let's be expectant. When someone is sick, Let's pray. When we're not healed, let's continue to pray. And when we continue to pray, because we don't know and because we don't comprehend what God is doing in us or in those who are around us in prayer, remember, 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 we know what is true. God heals, God can heal. God will heal when he chooses to do so. And should he not, then we also trust and believe that it was for a greater purpose that he chooses not to. Amen? I just want to stir us, church. I want to stir our faith in these things. And may I just remind you as I close of what I said at the very beginning, actually prior, what was a bit of the segue into this series on spiritual gifts that the church today stands poised and ready to be the answer that the world is longing for. And I spoke often about this word of transcendency, that everything within the world is in pursuit in some fashion or form of transcendency. And here the church is a living, vibrant, breathing organism of the transcendent God present in his church. Let's pursue the presence of God together. And by that I mean, let us not just be open to the concept, but let us pursue it and engage it with faith. So when this church comes together, there's an expectation that God will meet us in a tangible form. And should he not, regardless of what that medium is, our faith is still engaged and God still receives the glory. Let's expect this together, amen?
Would you please stand with me? If you're comfortable in doing so, would you just open your hands like this in a posture of receiving, if you're comfortable to do so? God, I'm asking this day, we are asking, Lord, that you will, that you would come and that you would enliven our faith to these truths. Father, in an, in an area of faith that seems to be so mysterious, Lord God, that seems to be so otherworldly, we still have examples and teachings and promises, Lord God, that it is your will to convey this and to multiply this within your church. Father, we're asking this day that you would awake our hearts to this truth. We're asking this day, Lord God, that we would be a, a true New Testament church that, that lives and walks and breathes and gathers in the real presence of God. The, the reality of the Holy Spirit power that fills the church, Lord God, that which descended upon the early day apostles that has, been, that has been given to each one of us individually upon faith, Lord God. We are asking that you would enliven our hearts in faith, that you would make us, Lord, aware of your workings, Father, in our presence. Lord, glorify yourself in this church by manifesting yourself in such a way. I pray, Father, for the unbelief. I pray for the doubt. I pray, Lord, even just the, the inklings of uncertainty if this is really something that you would do. Lord, that you would settle it. That you would settle it, Lord God. Not that we would somehow receive the praise and the accolades. Lord, we want to be a manifestation of your glory on earth. We want this church, Lord, to not only just be everything that she is, but Father, to, to, to uh, proclaim all that you have called her to proclaim. Father, set, set free the captives, we pray. Push back the darkness, Lord God, by advancing your kingdom through the lives of men and women. Use us in a mighty way, I ask, Lord God. And I pray that you would help us right now again, just where we are unsettled, Father, in our thinking or in our belief. Lord, we, we lean unto the truthfulness of your word. Lord, we allow your spirit right now in this moment to settle our doubts, to settle our uncertainties, Lord God. Father, glorify yourself through us right now, we pray. Just receive right now, church. Receive right now. Yes, Lord Jesus, come and speak to us, we pray. Father, we believe that some of us this day might say, help us in our unbelief, as the man who cried out for his son. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Lord, we believe that you can do all things. We thank you for what you're doing in this church, Lord. Deepen us, I pray. Further your gospel in our hearts. Root us, Lord, in such certainty. And may we be attuned and attentive, Lord, in step with your spirit as we go about, not just in the gathering of the church, but outside within the world, Lord, in our places of work and our spheres of influence, Lord. May we be attentive, ready, and desirous, Lord, 
to engage by the power of your Spirit. Father, again, glorify yourself in us, we pray. Amen, church.